So to begin today, to sort of enter into the worldview of a serious man, we're going to start with a little Yiddish 101. Say it with me. Tsuris. Not Tsuris, like tsitsi fly. Tsuris. Tsuris. It means, as some of you probably know, and some of you might not, troubles, particularly to be beset by overwhelming troubles. I've got surus. Surus would be, they would say. The next one. No, that is not the feminine plural of nachos. <laughs> no, ch, ch, ch. The people I grew up with don't say ch, they say ha. Nachas. Say with me. Nachas. Nachas. There we go. Come on. Get a little Eastern European with me here. All right. Nachas. Great blessings. Great joys. I've got nachas. Surus and nachas. The, the opposite ends of the spectrum in life. So that's to prep you for something I want to tell you right now. My dad wrote a musical once. Well, actually, it was the idea for a musical that had exactly one song and one scene. And actually, the one song had one stanza in that one song. It was this. Surus, 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 what have I done today? Surus, 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 when will it go away? Surus, 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 what hath my God wrought? Surus, 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 nachas can't be bought. This was the ongoing refrain that would echo throughout this play that never got written, the song that the main character would turn to the audience and sing. And by the way, if any of you want to write music for Surus, 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 it's waiting for you right there, okay? We, we can make this happen. We can take it to Broadway. Maybe not. The story of Surus that my dad was conjuring was largely his own life story about a successful man who had experienced some troubles, including, as he was telling me the sketch of the story, the sudden, unexpected, and tragic death of his wife, my mom. There was some real heartbreak in that. However, there was also some humor as well, too, in the play as he foresaw it. The first act ends with the me character running on stage and saying, Hey, Dad, guess what? I'm going to be a UU minister. Surus, 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 what have I done today? (laughs) Surus, 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 when will it go away? Surus, 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 what hath my God wrought? (laughs) Surus, 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 nachas can't be bought. Actually, my dad is completely okay with me becoming a U minister, but being completely okay with that kind of decision makes for no good drama whatsoever. So I had invent the idea that he was really upset. So when my dad started to sketch this out with me, I said, Dad, you know, You're creative, clearly. Um, But you realize what you're sketching out is just an entirely Jewish-American, upper-middle-class version of Fiddler on the Roof. You recognize this has all been done before. (laughs) It's all been done before. A Serious Man, the movie, is about a man with serious surus. The 1960s, it is a middle-class Jewish Midwestern story of the book of Job in the Bible about a seemingly upright, just man, just person, 
whose life completely falls apart. This is what we see in a serious man. The family life of Larry Gopnik completely falls apart. His kids cannot stand him. His wife is leaving him for a pillar in the community, a man that everyone thinks is a true serious man that Larry really aspires to be. But as we get to know this other man, we see that he is a complete to, uh, excuse me, pardon the Yiddish word, a complete schmuck. And by the way, you can now say that word because there's a movie called Dinner with Schmucks coming out. So I guess that's no longer a dirty word. We can use that all right. He has a brother who's a genius with absolutely no social skills who will not get off Larry's couch. In addition to that, he's up for tenure at the university where he teaches physics, a physics professor. Except he hasn't published anything. As the person, his supervisor, tells him, you haven't published. It's looking a little doubtful. At the same time, someone is sending in anonymous letters questioning him for moral turpitude. And then just to top it all off, a student, a physics student, who says he understands the stories of physics but doesn't need to get the math, he leaves several thousand dollars in an envelope on Larry's desk after meeting with him. At first seeming to bribe him, then not acknowledging, and then the student's father comes to town one day and seems to be blackmailing Larry, that he accepted the bribe. All throughout A Serious Man, there are images of perception and reception, a lot of shots of ears close up. Larry spends a lot of his time in the movie up on the roof of their suburban Minneapolis house, adjusting the antenna because his completely obnoxious 13-year-old son complains, Dad, we're not getting the right signal on Channel 4, so I can't watch F Troop. And actually, there's another joke in there. It's Coen Brothers. They're very, very smart filmmakers. Too smart for them. Good, in my opinion, in some ways. But the reason I think he wants to watch F Troop is because there has never been a movie in the history of all movies in which a group of 13-year-olds drops the F-bomb more than in this movie. They are their own little F Troop. Him adjusting that signal, which he cannot get clearly. That's a metaphor. That's a metaphor for the fact that as he goes through this time of surus, he wants a signal. He wants a sign. He wants some understanding of what it all means. He wants some understanding. He cannot, however, find that clear signal with the antenna. He cannot find that clear signal to his soul. He cannot get the answer that he wants. It is all uncertainty. Is it all fuzzy reception? An unclear picture. Now, this is a, not an exact, but a retelling of the story of Job. In the Bible, the story of Job in the Bible opens up with a little dialogue between God and Satan. And by the way, when you hear Satan, you are thinking tail and pitchfork and all that. That's not who the Satan is in this story. It's not. Think of the Satan in this story. If you know anything about the Job story as a minor league district attorney in God's heavenly court, sort of trying to ferret out who's right, who's wrong, who's just, who's unjust, not the incarnation of evil, not Lucifer, not anything like that. That's not in that story. That's not part of Jewish theology. It's not. It's something that came much later in Christian theology. The Satan, being a little impish, says to God, God, tell me about, you know, your most favorite. God says, well, look at Job, upright and proud and does everything he is supposed to and he is a good person in the community. And the Satan says, well, take away everything that's important to him and pretty soon I bet he will curse you. So it starts with a bet, a very cruel bet. And Job has everything taken away from him, his family, what he loves, his land. And that's a really, really important thing 
in Hebraic, ancient Hebraic tradition, because the first promise to Abraham was all about, basically, God says, follow me, and you'll have land, and you'll have progeny. You'll have kids, and you'll have a place to call home. In the ancient Near East, that was really, really important. That's how someone could tell that someone else was successful. And the Cohen brothers actually have a sly way of alluding to the Job story in this. This is Minneapolis, and it's mostly all a Jewish neighborhood in the 1960s where Larry Gopnik lives. But right in back of him, he has a classic Aryan hulking neighbor with a big buzz cut who carries around guns and rifles all the time and goes out and shoots things. And he is encroaching upon Larry's property line, a really sly reference to the idea of this uh, that Larry really is Job to a certain extent. His Land is being taken away from, as I already said, his kids cannot stand him. And to top it all off, while this movie is occurring, it is his son's bar mitzvah week when everything is falling apart. If you've ever heard about the story of Job, you may have heard this phrase about the patience of Job. Patience like Job. That actually is a complete mistranslation. Patience is not the word. Job is not patient. He actually is quite insistent. What that word means is steadfast. Job keeps at it in his search for answers. And in this way, the movie and the story of Job really do mirror each other. Like Job, Larry consults three sources, three resources who we think are going to give him the right answer, the exact way to understand his, his, his dilemma, his surus. Just like Job, he doesn't get great answers. He goes to one rabbi, a young, here's another Yiddish for you, Nebish, Wet behind the ears rabbi who just has no idea what he's doing and his solution to Larry's troubles, which in a certain way is really deep and in another way is completely, completely asinine. Larry, look at the parking lot. Look at how amazing this parking lot is right outside the suburban Minneapolis Jewish synagogue. It's nothing special. But at the same time, he's saying, look at it. Behold its wonders. He's saying, change your perspective. But I have to tell you, that if someone came to me with Larry's kinds of issues and kinds of service, and I said, look at the parking lot, I should be sued for clerical clergy malpractice. That's not the answer Larry needs. He goes to the second rabbi at the synagogue who is smooth and easy and has seen it all and done it all and tells him an almost completely nonsensical story called the Goy's Teeth. Goyim is the reference not always very nice for non-Jewish people that Jews sometimes use. Tells him a story about these Hebrew letters that were stenciled, carved into the inside of a Christian man's teeth with this dentist saw who came and told the rabbi the story another time. The story goes on and on and on. It's a shaggy dog story. It leads absolutely nowhere. Eventually, Larry wants to know, okay, there are these words. It means help me, save me. What's the answer to that? Is this this man crying out to be helped? Rabbi, I don't know. It's just a good story. Doesn't offer him any help at all. Doesn't give him the answer that he's searching for. The third is even less helpful, although in a different way, and I'll tell you this later on. He has a different perspective, although Larry never hears it. An ancient rabbi, perhaps a survivor of the Holocaust, who is so old that he no longer sees people anymore. He just stays in his study thinking, not ready to receive Larry. Now, the Coen brothers make really funny films, but always, always deeply ironic. Um, it's one of the reasons that actually I think they were sort of very ill-equipped to make a story that said anything deep or real about the nature of suffering, except one thing. I'm going to get to that in a second. For example, they use irony to distance us from the 
what's going on on the screen. People don't respond as we think they would. The 13-year-old gets as stoned as he can possibly get before his bar mitzvah and is up there with red eyes and sort of can't see the Torah text real well. The irony throughout all of this story keeps us at a distance from the suffering of the characters that we see up there on screen. But every once in a while, one of them says something that does bring it to home and bring it to heart. That the sufferer really does rip a hole in our understanding of reality. At one point, Larry says, and it's one of the few emotionally honest movies that I, moments I found in the movie, everything that I thought was one way turns out to be another way. When we suffer, when we really are in difficulty, it upends our normal expectations of what life is all about or what it should mean or how it should turn out. It's ironic, but not in a funny way, in an awful, scary way. Just three weeks ago, here, right here in Chester Springs, I know some of you know this story. I know some of you know this family. A seven-year-old named Tommy was getting off the bus, saw his mother across the street, ran across the street, was hit by that same bus, and eventually died. Just this past week on the Delaware, some tourists out for a nice little cruise in the duck boats, stalls out, they're hit by a barge, and two teenagers are dead. Life is unfair. Life is difficult. This is what the story of Job was meant to address. It's part of what's called in the Hebraic tradition wisdom literature. A lot of the rest of the Hebrew Bible is about knowing the law and doing the right thing, doing many good things, doing some other things that many modern people now entirely reject for the right reasons, but about knowing the law and doing the right things. The wisdom literature in the Hebrew Bible, and it's one of the reasons it's my favorite, is all about those people who do the right things. And still, life turns out so unfair, so unjust, that sometimes we can do all the right things, and things still don't turn out. We don't get the right answers. We don't get the right reward. In fact, it almost feels as if we're being punished. One of the reasons I love the wisdom literature, the story of Job, the book of Ecclesiastes in the Hebrew Scripture, is that it invites us to ask very different questions about what it means to suffer. I think... In fact, think there are three different questions people ask in the time of tsuras, difficulty, sadness, or suffering. We tend to lump them all together, but I think there are three. The first one is, in some ways, the easiest to answer, sometimes. Cause. What caused this? What was the cause and effect? What was the thing that happened? It's what they're trying to investigate about the duck boats. What happened to lead that boat to stall Was the radio call made to the Coast Guard? Was there any communication with the barge that was bearing down on them? In some ways, we hope, especially for the people who lost people that day, that they will know the cause. How did it happen? Then there's another question. What's the reason? The most difficult question. Why did this happen? Why? Tell me the reason. 
I personally feel that this is the question that must be addressed with the utmost humility. I personally know the dimension of life that is deep and divine and that I call God and that many of us call by a number of names. But the one thing that I absolutely believe about that dimension of reality is that it does not micromanage our world in such a way that it forces buses to hit children who have just been left off of those buses. It doesn't cause tourist boats to stall in the middle of the Delaware River. I don't believe that with all of my heart. I just don't think that's the way it works. Maybe you have a different impression. I just know that when someone is suffering... Very often what they do not need from me is the answer of why. Because I think my answer will always be incomplete. To remember how to respond to another person's suffering, I think we need to remember humility around this question of why. A number of years ago, I was with a gathering of guys. We had just gone to a football game. It was a playoff game. It was my beloved Giants. They got absolutely just destroyed. And we all went out afterward. And everyone but me was drinking. And they were drinking quite considerably. And, you know, not getting completely out of hand, but it was a very guys kind of event. The, you know, things got a little ribald, you know? There was some, there was some, uh, well, we'll keep it at that. It got, things got a little ribald. Now, at some point, we actually did start talking about some real stuff, and one of the guys at the table, somehow this came up, started talking about an associate of his, a business associate he had known some years before, said he had had headaches over, you know, a space of two, three months. And he went to get those headaches taken a look at. And his doctor told him, you have a brain tumor, a malignant brain tumor. And in two months, that otherwise healthy 40-something-year-old man was dead. And we sat there. The enthusiasm of the group quieted down for a moment. And incidentally, this is what happens in in Job, in the book of Job. His friends come and they see him, and they just sit with him in silence, honoring the horridness of what he's going through. They just sit with him. But perhaps there's something about silence that we cannot abide. And one of the people, just as Job's friends start telling him reasons, the why of why this is happening to him. And they're all inaccurate. They're all wrong. One of the guys at the table, as we were sitting there in silence, piped up, did he use cell phones a lot? That wasn't just a cause. He wanted the why. Now, you know, there's some studies out there. The last one I read, that's a decent study, shows that there may, 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 may be some link between benign brain tumors, may, and cell phone usage, excessive cell phone usage. I've read some studies that say there's none. But I don't care if you know absolutely. That is not the right response there. And what I know about the person who piped up about, did he use cell phones a lot? That had nothing to do with offering a reason that the other person would understand. I know that the person who offered that reason is terrified of their own death. They're terrified of the fact that life is not fair. They are terrified of the fact that chaos seeps into our lives. And sometimes bad things happen to good people. His offering that why was all about, if I can get the why, then it won't happen to me. It was an excuse not to be compassionate. It was an excuse not to feel the fear 
of those moments when bad things happen to good people. And you know what? Sometimes if we even think we know the exact right answers, it doesn't help all that much. I have a professor at Divinity School, a man who as a professor scared the crap out of me. A rigorous professor. He still teaches at Yale Divinity School. Nicholas Waltersdorf. He had those searing, searching intellect that I, um, 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 you know, I would just, I would just start to stammer in his presence. I couldn't get the words out because I knew the minute after I'd gotten something out, he would start to pick it to pieces. He was a great professor. But that's not why I remember him really. He wrote a beautiful, simple, thin little book, less than a hundred pages, simply called Lament for a Son. It's about his tsuras, his troubles, his suffering. That his 22-year-old son, Eric, on a post-collegiate mountain climbing trip in Switzerland, fell off the mountain and died. Nicholas Waltersdorf is not a fundamentalist Christian. He is an Orthodox Christian. He believes in the resurrection of the dead. He believes that he will be reunited with his son, But he said right up front in the beginning of the book, the fact that I know this does not take away the pain of Eric's absence. Even knowing the why cannot paper over grief in our hearts or loss. But there's a third meaning as well too. Besides cause, besides looking for reasons. And that is asking the question when we struggle, when we suffer. Not how, not why, but what does it mean? And that doesn't necessarily mean looking back. It means somehow finding the way to integrate what has happened to us into our lives and making it meaningful. But that is not the way that Larry Gopnik approaches that question in this movie. He wants an answer to be told to him by an authority. And the question of the meaning of suffering cannot be told. It can only be lived. It is a practice, not a theory. It is the idea that our response to the mystery of suffering becomes our answer to suffering. What I mean by that is exactly this. The most common quote that I see, especially from liberal religious folk on their Facebook pages or sometimes on their walls, it is Gandhi's wonderful encouragement. Become the change you wish to see in the world. Become. Not look back to get answers, but become the change that you wish to see in the world. If you wish to become wise, if you wish to maintain loving, if you wish to keep an open heart through a time of service and not be spoon-fed or given answers, but want to know and answer the meaning of what that suffering is for you. It takes time and it takes patience and it cannot be downloaded into any of us like a software program. There's a great blog called Cinema Styles that did a wonderful analysis of this movie, A Serious Man. This writer said, there's an old adage in the fitness world that says there absolutely is. There is a magic pill that can help one lose weight and feel better and get in shape, and you only need to take it three times a week. The only catch is that you have to take it for 30 minutes each time. It's called exercise. That's the difference between being given an answer and finding and cultivating the meaning. It's one of the reasons that spiritual practice is one of our core values at Wellsprings. 
Our spiritual practices, the many that we have in this congregation, do not remove doubt or uncertainty. Spiritual practice works with who we are and what we feel and teaches us to cultivate presence in the face of all that uncertainty. And knows that the meaning we receive, the meaning that we become, as Gandhi would say, is not theoretical and it is not primarily intellectual. All throughout this movie, the main theme, the main theme of a serious man is uncertainty. It uses some physics experiments, thought experiments, Schrodinger's cat, Heisenberg's, Heisenberg's uncertainty principle, that I know when they're used by non-physicists completely screw up the meaning of what they're intended to mean. But for the purpose of this movie, both those are all about living with uncertainty in a very, very humorous dream sequence where Larry is standing in front of his blackboard, which has blown up to ten, sides, ten times the size of this screen right here. And he's written in tiny little script all these numbers and all these letters and all these symbols. And he stands back against it in the dream and it absolutely dwarfs him. He turns around to his completely disinterested class and says, the uncertainty principle proves that we can't ever really know what's going on. And then he says to the class right before the bell rings, but even though you can't figure it out, you will still be responsible for it on the midterm. (laughs) Now, that's a joke in the movie. But actually, I think it's the wisest thing that the movie says. To be responsible to or responsible for something, even though we cannot comprehend it. That is such a deep path in life. The movie opens with a little epigram, a little quote from the medieval Jewish scholar Rashi. And it's not at all what the Coen brothers are about. They are not about simplicity. And so I love that they add another layer of uncertainty onto the movie with this quote. Receive with simplicity everything that happens to you. I don't think the Coen brothers, Joel and Ethan, have ever received anything simply. But there's great guidance in that quote. Notice it doesn't say receive with joy everything that happens to you. Receive with ease. Receive with happiness everything that happens to you. No, it just says receive with simplicity everything that happens to you. Don't overcomplicate it. Don't overthink it. What would it look like? What does it look like to receive Everything that happens to us simplicity, even as the movie begins and the movie ends, we are born into complete uncertainty, and it ends in complete uncertainty. What does it look like to receive things with simplicity? What does it look like to be responsible for something, even if we can't understand it? Well, this is where I want to take a page from another Coen Brothers movie. The inimitable Frances McDormand, that's Marge Gunderson. She lives out the truth of what it is to be responsible for something, even though she cannot understand it. This is from Fargo. I hope a lot of you have seen Fargo. It is the only Coen Brothers movie that actually hit me in my heart. I like a lot of their other stuff, but it's the only movie that got me in my heart, and it's all because of her. She receives what happens to her in life as a sheriff, as someone who deals with bad things happening all the time. She receives it with simplicity. And in that final statement, final statement of the movie, she has captured the bad guy who has caused such immense suffering for so many people, a true sociopath, a true person who preys upon other people. And he's locked up in the back 
or police car and she's bringing him back for what will be a righteous judgment upon what he has done. And I'm not going to even try to do the Minnesota accent. <laughs> but you know, she sort of purses her lips like she does in the movie. And all this for a little bit of money. You can see that she doesn't get it. But still, she's responsible for it. She's responsible to it. That is what it means. Our hero in a lot of ways. <laughs> One of mine, certainly. To have that presence to know that we are not going to get all the answers. And even if we think we do, ultimately, many of them prove unsatisfying. But to be not like Job, steadfastly looking for the answers, or like Larry, steadfastly looking for the answers, but to learn to be a steadfast presence. Not insistent on knowing everything, but steadfast in becoming the people that the situation asks us to be. To have that ability to respond. The only moment in this movie that made me sort of well up a little bit. Mentioned Larry's brother. Who Larry compared to him as everything in life going right. Even as it's falling apart. Even as they've been moved out of their house by his wife who says, the other man's going to move in, you get out. And they move to the Jolly Roger Motel. Nothing jolly about it. Even the pool is not filled. And Larry's brother sits on the side of it after he's had two run-ins with the law. And he sobs. And he says, you have so many things in life, Larry. <laughs> and Larry's losing everything in life. But he doesn't argue with his brother. He doesn't tell him, no, it's all being taken away from me. He hugs him. He is there with him. He doesn't try to prove himself wrong, prove himself right. He just is there with him. To learn to be there, which is to say, here, and maybe very much here for some of you on this day for whom tsuris is not a funny word, but a real word. To learn to be here. To learn to be able to be responsible even when we don't understand. That is to live out meaning in life is to know what it means to be steadfast and to have faith in a way that no doctrine can ever encompass. But truly, this kind of faith can lead us where we need to go. Amen. And may you live in blessing. Let's pray together. mysterious presence 
animating spirits of our lives. Where there is uncertainty, may we become the people who we believe we are called to be. Where there is that need for wisdom, may we know that it does not come in answers that can be told or spoken, but in a presence of love and compassion, grace and beauty that knows what it is to stand in life. Not to become a blank where life needs us, not to become an absence, but to become real presence. To be people who, whatever the season, whatever the season of the soul is before us, to be people who can be here, not racing off to somewhere else, but to be people who can be here. To know this certainly is to know blessing. And even more importantly, to be a blessing. Amen.